Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. So, hey, Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's so fun to have you on the show because, um, yeah, because we don't have a lot of insect farmers and (laughs) just inevitably, I think some of the funniest conversations I've ever had with a client have been with you because (laughs) of what you do. Um, So why don't you start by just introducing yourself and what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm... Kevin Bakuber. I own Madison Cricket Farm as well as Bakuber Consulting LLC. The first is a cricket farm based in, uh, well, with a facility in DeForest, Wisconsin now, producing live crickets for sale in the pet and fish bait industries. And then Madison, or Bakuber Consulting LLC is a niche consulting firm dedicated to insect agriculture and insect agriculture systems. So let's start with, um, let's start with Bakuber Consulting and then we'll go into your, your own farms. Is that sure. sound good? Cause it's kind of the chronology. How did you ever become an insect farm consultant? <laughs> Through experience um, and making a lot of mistakes. Uh-huh. So back in 2000, uh, 14, I started what became Big Cricket Farms, which in turn became the U.S.'s first FDA-inspected human food-grade insect farm. Huh. It was right when, you know, in 2013, the U.N. had released this report saying the world should eat more insects. And I kind of, you know, bridged my fingers and cackled a bit. I was like, I'll feed them to them. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, at the time, kind of the biggest bottleneck that was facing our, our growing industry was that there was no clear regulatory pathway to having food-grade insects. So we figured that all out. And in the course of that, developed deep relationships with a lot of other farmers, new and old. Uh, and we're able to kind of teach a lot of, especially the more experienced farmers, a lot about the food-grade processes and what, their, what kind of modifications their buildings would require. And they, in turn, taught us a lot about how to farm insects. So we ran that farm for about two years, and then we ran into the same problems that Flint, Michigan did in terms of uh, our water supply. Mm. So all of our bugs died, all of our workers got lead poisoning, so we closed up shop there and moved on. Uh, And a few months after that, after like an appropriate recovery time, I started Bakuber Consulting with the unofficial tagline, of we've made a lot of mistakes, so you can make new and interesting ones. <laughs> and we've been going from there. It's awesome. So before the whole um, food grade thing, there mm-hmm. were, I mean, I'm, I'm even surprised. There were farmers who were raising bugs before the whole food grade thing. And what were they raising bugs for? Sure. The insect agriculture uh, is live feeder insects is what the, the market segment is called. Okay. That started in the late 1940s okay. in, uh, with the Armstrong family. T.E. Armstrong is, I believe, was the first generation of cricket farmers in the U.S. And when he came back from World War II, he started it as a fish bait thing. Bass ah. in particular really love crickets, and bass fishing is a huge industry down south. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then maybe 45 years ago, 50 years ago, um, the third generation of Armstrong Cricket Farms really introduced the idea of selling live crickets for reptiles and other insectivorous animals in pet stores. Oh. The fish bait industry had grown big enough in the intervening years that there were a number of other farmers. But opening up the new market segment meant that there was a huge range for new entrants. And so it really kind of exploded in the, the 70s and 80s. And then in 2010, there was a large virus outbreak that uh, probably shot about half the farms in the U.S. Um, hmm. You know, and then uh, that kind of consolidated the industry a little bit. 
And then in 2013, 2014, as the food grade stuff started coming online, farmers really saw that as an expansion that was like the one into pet stores, but obviously much larger over time. Right. Right. Isn't that interesting? So, um, so you, um, well, let's now, so fast forward. Now you're, you're going back into having your own farm again. What, what got you doing that? Two things. One was I really wanted to take an appropriate amount of time, um, between closing the first farm and starting the second. Uh, it was, a pretty heartbreaking process to just kind of have millions and millions of insects dying week after week. Mm. Um, and I really wanted to take the time to kind of like both grieve and grow my own skills before I opened a new one. Mm-hmm. And I'd always kind of planned on it being about five years. And then I had spent, I've spent most of the time as a consultant doing a certain amount of desk work, but a lot of on-site travel for training, for development, for all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And the pandemic really ground that to a halt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a good portion of it was also boredom. <laughs> boredom. So some people, you know, when they're bored, I take up a new hobby. You start a new cricket farm. It's interesting, right? So, <laughs> so talk to us about what a cricket farm is like. It's hot. Um, it's hot. It's hot. It's like 90 degrees is about how hot I run my farms. A lot of people run them a little bit less hot. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really like the optimal performance zone for the crickets that we raise, which are the banded crickets, Grilides sigillatus. There's another commonly raised cricket, Acada domesticus, that needs it a little bit lower in temperature, but a lot wetter. It's also vulnerable to the the same virus that took out a lot of farms in 2010 and 2011. So we don't uh, raise those. But the crickets are raised in... Uh, 275 gallon water tanks like IBCs that have been cut in half and then the cages have been built up into four high racks and we either put egg filler flats like for bulk eggs or there's a specialty product that we produce called a cricket condo which is basically like a beer bottle divider with some holes punched in it for airflow and let the crickets move we use chicken waters currently with sponges in them so that the crickets don't drown but can have some access to fresh water. And then there's a pre-formulated feed that we buy from Land of Lakes that's roughly equivalent to uh, chicken feed. Isn't that funny? So you can buy cricket food? Cricket yeah. feed. Yeah. Isn't yeah, it's a big wild. enough industry that there are a couple of PhDs over at Missouri Land of Lakes that support the product, in fact. Wow. Wow. See, this is like this whole subculture. Yes. Who knew? Right? Surprisingly deep. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So you buy cricket um, feed. How long does it take for a cricket to mature? Well, so in the live feed market, we're selling a variety of crickets at a variety of life stages. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, it goes some people, the smallest frogs and the babiest of lizards and stuff need the freshly hatched crickets, which are called pinheads. Hmm. Um, and they're like a millimeter or two long. They look like little ants. So we hmm. sell some small portion of those. And then we wait about two weeks. And we get, and they're about a um, quarter of an inch long. And that's a small cricket. And then they go up one size category, small, medium, large, and adult over the next four weeks. Um, and then if you give them an additional week after they first hit adulthood, you'll be able to start laying eggs out of them. Mm. Um, overall, kind of the we aim to get crickets up to three-quarter inch, which is the most common live feeder size, in about 30 days. We get them through like a breeding life, si- life cycle in about 52. Wow. So, um, so you could scale this business up really fast. It has been a fast scale up. So we started January. We moved into our first space January 15th. Right. Uh, made our first, I think, $11 <laughs> on January 20th and hit our break even, uh, I believe, March 3rd. Wow. 
So yeah. I don't know a lot of farms or food businesses that can get break even to break even that fast. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, we have, you know, some advantages of having a fast cycle time. Mm-hmm. I have some personal advantages of being able to source eggs and other things like that from farmers that I've been working with on and off for years. Right. Uh, so you but one know. of the things that's always really been appealing to me is how quickly and how massively crickets reproduce. Huh. Yeah, it sounds so we heard about how fast it is. So how like one cricket will lay eggs, how many eggs will one cricket lay? So when you look at a, at a population level, mm-hmm. we always talk about it it's around a 30x generational multiplier. Wow. So uh 1000 crickets will yield about 30,000 babies. Mm-hmm. When they're, we breed them three times during their peak egg laying period, or we lay them three times during their peak egg laying period, mm-hmm. um, and they'll lay about a hundred eggs a day during that period. Wow. It's a bell shaped curve, so you try to avoid the part where they're laying like ten eggs a day on the front and forty eggs a day on the back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you let them lay their whole egg supply, mm-hmm. they'll lay between a thousand and fourteen hundred over a lifetime. Per cricket. Wow. So no wonder you can scale up so fast. Yeah. 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 Wow. Okay. So, um, so you have this, I don't know, this tiger by the tail thing here, right? This (laughs) thing is going to grow really fast. Um, how big do you want to get this thing to be? So a mature cricket farm is typically between a hundred thousand and 250,000 square feet of rearing space. Uh, okay, it's so pretty that's typical a big for them space. to be about two blocks, two city blocks. Whoa. Yeah. And I don't know that we'll grow it that large. We might grow it larger. I'm pretty flexible on it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I think that there's a lot of unmet need in the northern Midwest. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the first step is really uh, sizing out that market experientially, mm-hmm. but I kind of anticipate space is going to be our, our major pain throughout the entire expansion process. Cause that's a lot of space. I mean, it's a here lot we, of space. yeah, yeah. And that does not happen easily in an urban environment. Usually I would think it is a lot easier if your cricket farm is so old that a city grew up around it. Yeah. But you don't have that, uh, that luxury, unfortunately. Yeah, sadly, right? So, but the good news is you are in farm country here in the upper Midwest. So you don't yes. have to go very far outside of a city to find a lot of space. Right. So we uh, just went from 700 square feet was our starter, kind of test the market, test the waters, make sure we want to do this size. Mm-hmm. Um, and we scaled from that to a couple of weeks ago, we started our move into 3000 square feet okay. with the option to kind of expand it out to about 7,000. Mm-hmm. So we're going to squat in here for a little while and a year or two and really work out some of the kinks in our, um, processes in, in our, I'm essentially tired of lifting things, so I would really like conveyors to be more heavily used in our system. Interesting, yeah. Take some time, kind of work out those kinks before we start expanding semi-modularly, probably, Mm -hmm. into Mm -hmm. a larger footprint. Mm -hmm. And are you, I don't know, do these cricket farms, do you remain just crickets, or are there other species that that bug farmers raise? There's about a dozen commonly reared uh, species that are used in the pet industry. Mm-hmm. Um, just off the top of my head, it's crickets, mealworms, superworms, fruit flies, tomato or tobacco hornworm, black soldier fly. Um, there's two types of roaches and, and a couple other random species um, huh. that are all raised for feed. I... Uh, I'm of mixed opinion on the polyculture versus monoculture when it comes to insect farms. Mm -hmm. There's some cross transmissibility vectors for disease where one can act as a reservoir for a disease that doesn't affect them but can devastate others. Oh, yeah. 
But at the same time, it's really nice to have diverse income streams. Right. And is it different? I mean, I'm assuming different pets. Uh, or the same pets. I don't know. Sometimes, I mean, there's some overlap. The thing that really is the strongest driver for uh, having a polyculture farm is that if you don't, you're going to end up like bringing in outside insects anyways, because most pet store owners want a single stop shop. Mm, so right. if they're calling for, you know, crickets are the main driver of the, the economic model here. It's the, the thing that people buy. Mm-hmm. But as long as they're buying crickets from you, they're like, could I also buy some, you know, super worms, some hornworms? Right. So, yeah. Um, and really, in a, in a well-developed farm, you offer all of them, regardless of whether you're buying in. Mm-hmm. Those insects are rearing them yourself. Interesting. Is this, uh, so is this mostly reptiles or what is it that eats the crickets? Yeah, it's reptiles. It's uh, fish bait, especially down south. Okay. It's to a lesser degree. Um, it's also some types of birds. Backyard chicken, you know, is a oh. lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also some like laboratory use of crickets and uh, less established but it's mostly reptiles and amphibian mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and hedgehogs. Mm-hmm. And hedgehogs? Yeah, they're insectivores. So, huh? Like pe- people have hedgehogs as pets? They do. That is also a very deep subculture. Oh, I was gonna say, man. So, so your customer service must be crazy, right? Like, because your customers are people who either they own hedgehogs or snakes or oh. no, 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 no. I, no, no. Uh, we are very focused at the moment on the uh, pet store owner. Uh, the, okay, so you don't have to deal with the reptile owner. We tried it for a little bit, uh-huh. uh, and I quickly realized that I need to hire somebody who is at least twenty hours a week customer service representative before mm-hmm. I go down that road because they right. are. Particular, their clients. I bet. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And an unusual customer base. So, yeah. So, leave it to the pet stores. That makes sense. That makes sense. And, um, all right. So, you're scaling up this thing. um, And are are you selling into the human consumption? Not now. Not now. Okay. Human consumption market really hits when you're or really starts making sense in two scenarios, both of which kind of require a large stabilized farm. Mm-hmm. Once you breed, you typically breed in a mature farm where you're not trying to grow your population at all. You're just trying to maintain. Mm-hmm. You'll breed between three and five percent of your crickets. Okay. Um, and there's kind of a there's a, a they age out right around the same time that they're laying. Mm-hmm. So you end up having like a rapidly decreasing population, but there's still enough breeders, which are also kind of the desirable size and uh, characteristics and everything for the human consumption market. Mm-hmm. Once you're large enough, you end up with like a few thousand pounds worth of those crickets every week that hmm. you don't want to sell as live because they won't, they're not, they don't have enough age left in them. Mm-hmm. To make it, I always estimate it's kind of like tomatoes. You want one week at the store, one week at the consumer's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't have two two weeks left. Right. And then the other thing is, especially down south where fish bait season, which is Labor Day to Memorial Day, so 78 right. days, you're producing it like 120%. And then the rest of the year, you might be producing it 40 to 60%. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people see the human food market as a play, as a way to keep production, you know, full year mm-hmm. round. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. So so you feel like you need to get bigger. It sounds like your current farm anyway needs to get bigger before you're really going to go into the human market. Yeah, the live feed market is significantly higher margin. Okay. Um, it's higher labor, but it's also, you know, it's not disruptable by, you know, for example, low-cost co- low imports from Southeast Asia, the way that cricket protein powder, for example, is. Oh, you know, in Thailand, there's 20,000 cricket farms. They've been doing it for generations. It's Whoa. a very normal part of the food supply chain. So mm-hmm. they, there's a lot more 
um, excess supply to draw from. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the U.S., for the last 10 years, reptile ownership goes up every year. The number of farms stays roughly the same or decreases. Mm. So there's a huge uh, supply gap. Got it. I really feel like needs to be filled before mm-hmm. we start getting too fancy. Mm-hmm. Before you go into the, the human market. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. In Southeast Asia, do they, is that a bigger, they have all these farms because they eat in, it's just part of their diet? Right. So what's interesting, I met with some of the Thai Ministry of Agriculture mm-hmm. uh, trade representatives a few years ago. Mm-hmm. What was really interesting is that they have had a really hard time shifting insects into animal feed in Thailand. Hmm. Because people associate it so strongly with human food. Oh, They're like, why would I get it's like giving a pizza to your chickens. To a snake like, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's yeah, it's fascinating. So crickets, so how do how do people in Southeast Asia eat crickets? Typically they'll be uh wok fried, often with a little bit of sesame oil, some ginger, some uh garlic and uh, chili. Wow. And then just so, sold in, in little street stands. Huh. And they're, I bet they're like crunchy. Yes. Somebody once described them as the marriage of cashew and sweet corn. And I really like that as Whoa. a flavor profile. Cashew and sweet corn. Huh. Yeah. Well, I would never have like thought of that. I, you know, cashew right. and sweet corn. Wow. Huh. All right, so um, so we don't do that here. <laughs> so we're not, we don't have street vendors with with them. Um, but but I I remember I don't know when it was three probably three four years ago that um, I was a judge in a pitch event and it, a big national one and one of the one of the winners um, had a tomato sauce that had. I don't know. It was insect in it, but I don't know if it was cricket or I think it I bet that that was, was, cricket. was the company called Sifu. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. They had like the bolognese sauce. Uh-huh. Yeah. So they've since sold their technology, underlying technology to a company called Yinsect, which is one of the big players in the European oh, insect market. Uh-huh. Um, I really like their, I like the people as people and their product was very cool. It was very cool. That's that's why they won. <laughs> it yes, was really yes, cool. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it it wasn't just like intriguing and weird, right? It, it right. actually was functional in a really good way. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, are you going to ever? Do you ever see yourself doing some product development like that? Um, I could see myself hiring people and collaborating with people to do that product development. Uh-huh. Um. You know, I have a, a couple of ideas that I've jokingly kicked around for years and some that I'm a little more serious about. Um, but I really recognize where my expertise is, mm-hmm. and that's in the production systems. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, if it if there's a reasonable opportunity for it, the value-added producer's grant exists, yeah, right. I think it's likely that we'll end up doing something. Yeah. Yeah. So does insect farming qualify as farming for the USDA? It has been a bone of contention for many years. I know. That's why I'm asking. Uh, increasingly, yes. Hmm. We, well. we uh, with the change of administration and bringing Vilsack back, mm-hmm. it's been a lot more helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like bored emeritus on uh, the North American Coalition of Insect Agriculture, mm-hmm. which is the, the trade org. Yeah. Um, and we've recently been in contact with USDA. Um, there's some partner, there's some programs that we're partnering on and, um, you know, kind of gently reminding uh, Tom Vilsack that we exist and we've gotten positive response. So, I mean, uh, eight or nine years ago, it was near impossible to, for the insects to be considered agriculture. And increasingly, they're just kind of lumped in with the rest of agriculture, and it's no big deal. 
Interesting. Well, that's good. Because it's weird. Like, I work with some flower farms, and they don't qualify for VAPG. I'm like, why? They're raising a plant. Like, what are you? It's weird, right, about the USDA sometimes. Right. A lot of their programs are, like, food and fiber. And I'm like, if I could make, I'm not doing silkworms. Otherwise, I would, like, qualify for one of those. Right. Then you could do, then you could Mm -hmm. do fiber. Right. It's weird. It's weird. So, well, that's interesting. So, all right. So, um, I, I mean, do you imagine getting to a facility that's like two city blocks or? Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How many people would you employ in something like that? Are you usually looking at like between 40 and 75 on the traditional farming methodology? Mm-hmm. It could be a, uh, significantly less if some of our our process uh, optimizations work how we hope they will. Okay, so it's like some of the automation that you were talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it, it, it? I mean, it sounds like the industry is sort of an old, and I, I'm just going to use this word, an old industry, right? That the mm-hmm. in the growing side is that. You know what I yeah. mean? So pretty labor intensive and not a lot of innovation. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the same type of conservatism that I think hits a lot of different types of farmers mm-hmm. where once you find a system that works, it can be a little terrifying to move into anything else. Right. You know, this is where your bread has been buttered for three generations. There's a lot of institutional inertia mm-hmm. against, um, especially on the capital expenditures, you know, um, a lot of people are still using uh, bins that were produced in, I think, 1985 or 1988 mm. because there's extremely long uh, um, lifetime equipment, you know. Sure. It's kind of like a pasteurizer in a dairy plant, right? right. The thing will just run and run forever. <laughs> so totally. for the most you part. You replace it every third generation of farmer. Yeah, right. Yeah, interesting. So so it's kind of a it's kind of ripe for ripe for disruption, if you want to call it that. I push back pretty vigorously on that. I think it is ripe for people with deep knowledge of existing processes and existing uh, biology mm-hmm. to make targeted and improved optimization. Interesting, um, yeah. I've uh, On the consulting end of things, I've watched many different groups uh, come in and some go in and out of the industry. Mm-hmm. And I find that people who are really focused on growing the insects first tend to hit revenue that allows them to stay in business mm-hmm. and people who come in with a little bit of a technical technological disruption mm-hmm. tend to not last very long. It, it is an interesting thing about food and agriculture in general, I would say is like that, mm-hmm. right? There's, I don't know, there's something about what we do that you hear a lot of, Oh, we're going to, you know, ripe for disruption in that. And it's people with a tech bent who are saying that, right? And right. and then it comes in with that mentality that, oh yeah, we're going to change everything. And then it's still a biological system, right? That has exactly. constraints. Yeah. 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 And it doesn't really care about your opinions. Right. Exactly. Or or your desire to be cool and smart or whatever. <laughs> right. It's like yeah, interesting. So are there other interesting applications for crickets? Yeah, I feel like we're just in the very beginning of a lot of the second and third generation stuff. And I think Mm -hmm. that's where it's going to get so fascinating. Uh, Just to like pick out two of them at semi-random. Yeah. um, Kind of the, the food web, full cycle agriculture stuff is really fascinating to me. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple of clients and even my own farm have done some work with mushroom farmers where we take the spent uh, mushroom substrates mm-hmm. and feed them into the crickets. And then we take the cricket frass, like their poop, and mm-hmm. we feed that and turn back into the, the mushroom substrates. And huh. it works out incredibly for both sides. Huh. Yeah. So I never... Yeah, I suppose I should have thought of that, but crickets have poop too, right? So is that like, if you have like two city blocks worth of crickets, that's that could actually be quite a bit of poop. 
14 tons once or twice a week is holy cow yeah wow so what is what so you can feed it to mushrooms is it good for growing other things yeah it's actually um there are farms down in the american southeast that have arrangements with pig farmers Mm-hmm. where uh, there's just like a gooseneck and when it's full, you come and pick it up kind of situation. Mm-hmm. We've been feeding the frass directly to pigs for 30, 40 years. Wow. Um, this is not like an AFCO approved use. There is no ingredient definition for cricket poo at this time. <laughs> but would it be good for, you know, like chicken, chicken manure is really good for vegetable growers. Would it be good for vegetable growers? Yeah. I mean, there's a immunoactivation situation that happens with some plants when you fertilize or top treat with, um, the frass. Mm-hmm. It's more specifically the chitin, like the molt uh, skins from when they shed. Mm-hmm. And it makes the plant think that it's under attack. So it grows more really? quickly, grows more fully, grows bushier and fruits faster. Um, Whoa. You know, the, the, the dream that I think no one's ever real, actually realized in our industry is it makes sense to sell it to cannabis growers. <laughs> Um, oh yeah because they'll it, pay it more for everything what's that i said because they'll pay more for anything that is the theory <laughs> yeah and it would make the plants grow bigger and faster right, right. and a Isn't fuller that... flush uh so they think fun. it's an insect predator right the plant yeah. does basically They're like oh no i'm about to be attacked whoa isn't that crazy yeah um, and then I've had like, you know, proximate analyses done on the, the frass before and it's relatively high in protein. It seems like it's got, you know, they're, um, very low on the trophic scale. Mm-hmm. So they digest, but they definitely don't digest completely. There's a mm-hmm. lot of minerals and a lot of, uh, valuable, uh, digestive components left in mm-hmm. the poo that can be digested by something higher on the trophic chain. So nitrogen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember. It's got like a pretty average MPK value. Uh-huh. Well, um, that's, average is probably good, actually. Yeah, right? This like is a world comes, where you want balance, yeah. Right, exactly. Uh-huh. Um, it, yeah. Interesting. All right. So, yeah, you know, I was talking to somebody recently about test tube meat, and they're like, what happens to the poop? Like the, you know, cells have waste products too. You know, you're not used to thinking about that. And they're like, huh. Well, the other interesting application I wanted to just like highlight kind of feeds onto it, Uh which is there's been a little bit of work done, and there's a growing body of evidence for it around insects generally often focused on black soldier fly, which is the one that's really been tapped as like the go-to for commodity scale animal feed. Okay. Um, And, you know, you think about it in the the insects proportionally are much closer in size to bacteria in uh, mold than we are. Mm -hmm. And they've been competing with each other for 180 million years or so. Mm-hmm. So there's really fascinating early research, both on probiotic um, improvements in animal and human digestion from consuming the insects, um, but huh. also some of the insects will completely eat um, pathogens. So on the black soldier fly, they've noticed that Staphylococcus and a couple other foodborne pathogens, if you feed infected material into the black soldier fly, they're like, whatever. And they just eat the the pathogens and reduce them, you know, by several scale factors, if not completely. Whoa. Yeah. And the same with aflatoxins and mycotoxins. Wow. So things like corn smut, mm-hmm. um, where they would normally be producing vomitoxin and you just have to like till that portion right. under. They can eat that and neutralize it. It's so interesting, right? And then you think about you know, chemical agriculture that is putting pesticides on everything. And here we're like, yeah, well, maybe we're killing this pest, but we're also getting rid of stuff that could have managed some of this. 
Yeah, absolutely. Pesticides are definitely an existential threat for <laughs> for our industry. Well, yeah, obviously for you guys, <laughs> right? like, like, yeah, you're you're like the opposite, right? We're we're growing these intentionally, but yeah, isn't that fascinating? That's fascinating. So there are people researching this. There's a little bit of work done being here and being done here and there, kind of diversely, mm-hmm. and then there are larger scale studies that have been happening with, um, in particular, black soldier fly going into fish and chicken. Hmm. Interesting. So, and that, but does the, do the flies have to be alive in order for that to happen? I'm assuming. Uh, no, I mean the, so the pathogen consumption happens while they're alive and then there's, you know, you can't find trace of the past pathogen in like the finished product. Right. Um, there's behavioral stuff that people have been doing experiments with, mm-hmm. with like, um, you know how broiler chickens tend to have weak legs because they just don't get a lot of motion. Yeah. Well, we've if been, you, we bred them to do that right. because of, yeah, how we raise them. Mm-hmm. Well, if you introduce live black soldier fly into the, the chicken scratch, they are very motivated to move those little legs. Oh, funny. And then in aquaculture systems, you see a lot more of the microbiota, work uh-huh. going on and there's you know um it's not there yet i suspect that especially for like salmon and trout mm-hmm. you need to have a couple different types of insect uh incorporated into the feed to really give them a balanced diet mm-hmm. but uh and we're you know the studies to date have all been focused on like single insect input feed studies i see yeah so just a lot of room for progress. It is fascinating, right? When you think about it, like, tr- yeah, aquaculture, salmon, trout, what, the, what do they eat? They eat bugs, right? And normally yeah. in their native habitat. So it would make sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy. So it must feel like really, it must be really fun to be in an industry that's so emergent the way this is. Absolutely. I mean, there's periods of very high stress. Don't let me, you know, undersell that. But I really love the feeling of wide open spaces and kind of blue skies and just having so much room to to flex and stretch out and build something new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even though you're building a farm and other people have built a farm before, it sounds like you're kind of interested in some of these emerging applications yeah absolutely i joke that i am agnostic to where my crickets go after they leave the farm uh-huh I'm looking for the highest margin with the least complaining uh-huh yeah, the most milk <laughs> the least food mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, right you know i i also am very interested in kind of continuing development both on making uh cricket farming production systems, less labor intensive and less Mm -hmm. hard on my personal low back. Right. As well as these more applied values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So when, when somebody wants to locate a, a cricket insect farm somewhere, do you get like people in the neighborhood go, I don't really want a bug farm here? It's definitely happened. It's yeah. definitely happened. I would think, right? Like, <laughs> I would think it would not be the easiest thing to find a place where people were happy to have the bug farm. It depends on where you are and kind uh-huh. of the, you know, so Madison was difficult because it's largely government and service sector oriented. There mm-hmm. aren't a lot of great spaces in the first place. Oh, and you need volume. You know, you need voluminous space and there just isn't a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Madison was difficult to find space. So you ended up, you're outside of Madison now, right? Yeah. We had tried to get into the, um, Oscar Meyer building Uh and that fell apart the way it sounds like it's fallen apart for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we thankfully wasted less time on that than I think some other other people might have. Uh huh. Um, 
But yeah, I have a hunch that in the next three to five years, I'll kind of lose my chill a little bit at looking at pre-made occupying existing spaces and we'll Mm -hmm. probably end up building something custom. Well, I I mean, uh, when I did (laughs) Tara's Way, we started out, we were going to take over an old cheese plant and then you realize that you're forever accommodating something that was not set up for what you really need, right? Yeah. And you're always less efficient because of that. And would like, would you, I mean, if you get this thing automated, like you're thinking of, would it be, would you want it to be tall, you know, tall ceilings? Would that be efficient? You know, I don't know. Land's cheap. Mm -hmm. You know, it's such a fraction of, um, of what it takes, you know, acreage wise to do, cows or chickens or oh sure yeah that i'm okay with spreading more and keeping uh-huh. lower buildings uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh and i mean when i talk about kind of the the process improvements i'm really looking less at automation mm-hmm. um and more at like tooling mm. where you know it's um mechanical assistance to human operators mm-hmm um i remain unconvinced that insects can be fully automated mm-hmm um, but I do think that it can be much more like a plant or a factory kind of situation where the work comes to the worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's really what we're oriented at in our, our development processes. Interesting. You know, yeah. you increase the skill level of the, the workers and you decrease the, the number of workers required to produce a given volume of crickets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and maybe you're like moving things around with forklifts instead of lifting it yourself or something, you know? I, I would know. love them to all be on a track. The forklift also becomes quite the bottleneck at oh, certain scales. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So on a on a conveyor system. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's my dream. That's my hope. Uh-huh. We'll find out if it works well. Well, I mean, you're the of all the people, you're probably the right person because you have this, you know, intellectual curiosity about stuff too. Yeah. To figure it out. Yes. Uh, a strong motivation to uh, also do it, given how often I'm still in the farm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is there kind of a, a subculture of people who are in this industry who work in the industry? I mean, it seems like there must be. Yes. Both in the, uh, the edible insect and insect for food and feed type of people. Mm-hmm. I would say are a different subculture than the insects for live feeders for mm-hmm. pet stores and stuff. Yeah. Um, so they're two distinct subcultures that really haven't wanted to mix, which I find fascinating. Hmm. It is fascinating. Like uh, it, it's, but you as the grower kind of sit in the middle of it. It's yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of the first on the, the human food side of things. You know, the work that we did at Big Cricket Farms really enabled uh, the entire American industry for the edible insects and the insects for food and feed mm-hmm. to move faster than, say, in Europe, where they ran into novel foods legislation problem right off the bat. Oh, uh, right. And it set them back a few years from revenue. But on the other hand, they've had a lot more government investment into, um, you know, studying core issues and um, a lot more investment in lending activity into farms and growing companies mm-hmm. than we have. So, you know, different paths. Right. It is interesting, right? And, and that's sort of a similar a lot of industries would compare, you know, thinking about how it how it was approached in Europe versus here and ag and food are very similar. It's it's it, it's interesting in a lot of sustainable ag related things. Europe is way ahead of us because of the government's willingness to invest early that we don't have here. Yeah. 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 Interesting. But so, on the other hand, our regulation is, you know a lot more wild westy than theirs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So our people are able to get novel products to market much, much faster. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, and that's classic, right? The classic difference between here and Europe. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So you think you're going to get, um, you're going to keep growing. You're going to have the two, the equivalent of the two um, city block plant outside of Madison. I think it's reasonable to either get up to there or some fraction of there in the next decade or so. Okay. And it'll um, only take a decade. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> well, but if you, this is a lot of planning ahead of time and really having like the, the end vision. Um, you know, my brother, who's also been on your podcast, shout out. Yeah, yeah, uh, David Bakuber, yeah. So, I mean, when he first got his 25 acres out in Stoughton, we talked a lot about how if you put the greenhouse here, it may not be maximally convenient now, but you're probably not going to move that greenhouse. So what's the 25-year plan? Right, right. And so that kind of uh, guided decision-making, I think, mm-hmm. lets us scale rapidly. You know, and we also, I also have a team of people that I've been working with for years, and we all have a lot of expertise in insect production systems. Right. We're able to skip a lot of the early developmental milestones that you would mm-hmm. normally see. Right. People like gain skill. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're trying to grow fast enough that we get to where we're all comfortable financially. Mm-hmm. Um, but also not grow so fast that we end up, you know, scaling out of our capacity to control our systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, when when your when your crickets are reproducing as fast as they are, I could see that happening pretty it is easily. Frequent, yeah. Mhm. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. It'd be lots like of, holy crap, look at how many babies there are. Where are we going to put them all? I could just, just like put them in anything you can. Yeah. <laughs> anything you can. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and and plant out in the country, is that kind of the ideal, do you think? (sighs) My ideal would be in the city. I think it's likely to be out in the country. Yeah. I know. We all kind of like, wouldn't it be cool? We could do this (laughs) revitalization of the city or whatever, and then the practicalities of it hit, you know? I don't think it's practicalities. I think it's that 1.1 million square feet of prime manufacturing space in the city is just unoccupied and that creates so much pressure on every other little scrap of warehousing that it functionally ties up the whole city. Yeah, no, I get it. When I say practical, I mean bad, right? It's just like among other things. Right. But yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like the city could be more aggressive and we could solve that issue. Right. Or be more creative about how you think about what you do in a city now, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's, um, yeah, it's hard to get out of that. Right. It's funny because I, I think I was saying to somebody recently about how it's funny to me to have conversations with economic development people right now, because every program is set up to measure success by job creation and we don't have any employees like, you know, like, we need something other than job creation. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like the wrong metric, right? It's weird. Well, in Wisconsin's particularly crazy in you know not having uh, like the low interest job creation loans mm-hmm. after after some of the the debacles here and trying to attract large employers, right. Right. No, it's it's so yeah. It so we still measure success by job creation, but then we don't really have the programs to support it, and we actually don't have enough employees anyway. So I'm like, yeah, it's weird. And then there's cool stuff like what you're doing, though. It's so fun. I'm so glad you're here, up up in the North Country, doing this, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's really fun. You know, I moved to Madison in 2010 and then was basically, basically been in and out for the last 10 years. And, you know, my whole family lives down here and I've developed a good friend group and everything like that. So it's been a pleasure to start building something that just allows me to be home. 
Yeah, isn't that awesome? And and it's going to be great to have you here. And it'll be, I can just imagine, you're going to have fun figuring out what to do with bug poop around here. And we'll learn a lot. And, you know, I don't know. I can just imagine all the things that you're going to, you know, kind of decide things that will spin off from having you here. Exactly. I mean, like, I'll probably end up with a small food grade uh, production facility mm-hmm. off to the side somewhere just because I'm so excited to work with like uh Siavada Adari over at Coco Vile Chocolatiers mm-hmm. and work with a lot of the creative chefs that we have in Madison. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's something that kind of transcends revenue model into just joy. Yeah, well and if you can do that with your work then you're really right. lucky, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So we've covered a lot of ground. Um, have we mm. missed anything? Nothing jumps to mind to me. How about for you? Mm, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. It's um, it's going to be fascinating to watch what you're up to. I think everybody mm-hmm. will want to circle around with you in a couple of years to see where you're see where the business is at. How many square feet of bug and how many bugs right. do you have? How many do you have right now? Um, I think we're only just because we're just fresh into the new building and uh, starting with some fresh stock. Mm-hmm. I think we're only hatching maybe four hundred thousand a week right now. <laughs> So we should be up to only four hundred thousand a week pretty quickly. Two million a week pretty quickly. Whoa! Yeah, that's so crazy. Well, it's hey, a shocking number of insects. It is shocking, right? Just the the math of this is so crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. It's so awesome. Well, hey, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be the second Bakuber on the. Uh, podcast yeah see isn't that perfect what a family thanks for listening you can get more podcasts by subscribing on itunes or your favorite podcast app and you can learn more about edible alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org